The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Hope on the Horizon for Hadrodonitis Superativa, Leveraging Emerging Biologics to Improve Quality of Life. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RJF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Vivian Shi from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Welcome to this educational activity on hydroadenitis suprativa. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Jennifer Shell from the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Vivian. Glad to be here today. We will start our discussion with, is it HS or something else? Avoiding diagnostic pitfalls. Let's talk about uh, background information about HS to start. So, HS presents as recurrent nodules and abscesses, most commonly in intertriginous areas. So typically, uh, you know, neck fold, axilla, under the breast, the groin and the buttock area, but it can occur in other areas as well. So I've seen HS on the trunk, arms and legs. Um, these nodules and abscesses can be very painful and there can be a recurrent cycle where they rupture, drain, and ultimately develop sinus tracts or tunnels and also scarring. With a lot of scarring, um, patients can then have limitations in the way that they move. So if there's a lot of scarring in the axilla, for example, it may be difficult for them to raise their arm. The prevalence of HS um, in the literature has been quoted from anywhere between 0.1 to 4%, depending on the patient population and the methodology that was used. In Western nations, it's been shown to be twice as common in women compared to men. It typically occurs after puberty, though prepubertal cases have been reported as well, and also before menopause. Risk factors for HS include smoking, obesity, and also positive family history. Um, a study also showed that prevalence in African Americans may be three times higher than in Caucasian patients, so disproportionately affecting minority and women. The pathogenesis of HS is currently still under investigation. At this time, it's thought to be a disease of follicular occlusion that involves perifollicular immune activation, occlusion, dilatation of hair follicles. Other potential causes include mechanical stress playing a role, such as friction, hormonal dysregulation, dysbiosis, and also metabolic dysregulation. There have been multiple inflammatory cytokines that have been found to be elevated, including TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, IL-12-23, IL-17-A and F, IL-36, among others. So let's get into discussing a case, um, and then uh, Vivian will ask you how you would approach this case. So let's consider Kate, a 32-year-old female patient. She is presenting with painful abscesses and inflamed nodules, both in the armpits and around the buttock area. She has seen five different specialists since her early 20s. She has occasional blood and discharge from the abscesses. How would you go about approaching this patient to, you know, confirm diagnosis? And would you order tests on this patient? Yeah, Jenny, this is a great question. So typically, HS is the clinical diagnosis. Um, there are certain key features that are unique to HS. There are the typical lesions. For example, there are inflammatory nodules, acneiform lesions, um, abscesses, and in more later stage with scarring, atrophic scarring, and tunnels and sinus tracts. And the chronicity is also a key. It usually lasts six months or longer, and the nature is usually remitting, relapsing. 
And like you mentioned earlier, there's more um, characteristic areas and distributions. They're most commonly found in the intertriginous sites, like this patient in the armpits, buttocks. But like you said earlier, it can occur anywhere that has the skin. So this particular case, we have a childbearing age woman, which is kind of the you know typical demographic for the patient. And you have see pictures here, pretty classic lesions. You see inflammatory nodules, some resolving abscesses and atrophic scarring, and very early sinus tract formation. So because of these typical natures, I think it's most commonly fitting for HS, and that's a clinical diagnosis. We typically don't do biopsies on HS unless we're trying to rule out other diagnosis or when the diagnosis is uncertain. For example, we may do biopsy to rule out skin cancer, squamous cell carcinoma, or other uh, differential diagnosis, which we'll talk about later on in this presentation. Great. That's so helpful. Um, at this point, how would you consider staging this patient? That's a great question. So the most commonly used staging system is called the Hurley stage. It's quick and easy. It's mostly a surgical criteria though, but the, nevertheless, Hurley stage one typically presents as isolated recurrent inflammatory nodules without sinus tracts or significant scarring. Whereas Hurley two corresponds to recurrent abscesses with sinus tracts and scarring. And then Hurley three, which is the late stage, shows diffuse involvement in one single anatomical area with multiple interconnected tracts and abscesses. And in patients who have multiple areas involved, the Hurley stage for the patient is typically that of the most severe location. So when we think about diagnosis, I want to hone in a little bit on the signs and symptoms. We talked about the chronicity and the relapsing remitting features of it. We typically want to inquire about the length of their symptoms when it started, whether they had previously had other diagnoses. How's their pain, discharge, and other symptoms? And what are some of the lifestyle modification factors that we can look at, such as smoking, overweightness, and inquire about family history of HS and other comorbidities, such as inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, etc. We want to look for the classic lesions, such as abscesses and nodules and sinus tracts, and look for the typical anatomical location in the intertriginous sites. Um, but it can occur anywhere, like we mentioned. The lesions typically will have purulent drainage and malodorous discharge. That's during active disease, and we need to be mindful that patients may present with quiescent disease, and some of the clues on physical finding could be blackheads or open and closed comedones, um, atrophic scarring, and this follicular prominence where the skin is um, around the hair follicle may be more elevated and bumpy, kind of like chicken skin. So these are signs that help us diagnose quiescent disease. Now, we just talked about the classic lesions in HS, but as anything in dermatology, there can be differential diagnosis and mimickers. So early stage of HS, it can be misdiagnosed as folliculitis, foruncles and carbuncles, acne, or just a simple inclusion, epidermal inclusion cysts, pylonidosis or perireptal axis or an erysipelas. In the later stage, things get a little bit tricky. It can look like infections, such as actinomycosis. It can look like sexually transmitted infections, such as granuloma inguinale, lymphogranuloma venarium, um, cath scratch disease. Um, it can even look like cutaneous Crohn's disease. This is a classic one where the lesions appear to be knife-like and fissure-like in the areas around the buttock and the inguinal area. It can occur as pylonidal disease, and rarely it can even look like cutaneous tuberculosis. So 
um, it can mimic a lot of things on the skin. So I wanted to ask Dr. Shell, since there are so much mimickers, how would you go about differentially diagnosing HS um, and rule out these other um, differential diagnoses? What are your clinical pearls for to share with the audience? When somebody presents and they just have one abscess, it could just be uh, MRSA. And one way to find out would be you could uh, do your incision and drainage, send the purulence uh, drainage for culture, and see if you just get one organism that grows out. If it's literally just MRSA that's growing out and they've never had this happen before, um, it could just be that they had a furuncle. However, if this continues to occur, if you are doing an incision and drainage and um, the fluid that you're sending is coming back positive for multiple different microbial species or it's sterile, I think that HS starts to go up on your differential, especially with that history of recurrence like you mentioned earlier. For things like late stage HS, I think the biggest, um, one of the biggest things to think about is how to differentiate from cutaneous Crohn's disease. There are some clinical features of cutaneous Crohn's. You mentioned the knife cut fissures that, you know, classically can be seen in cutaneous Crohn's. Also, um, other clinical features such as genital edema or having, for example, perianal tags. That might also lead you more towards cutaneous Crohn's and, of course, doing a very solid review of systems for, uh, you know, bloody diarrhea, abdominal pain, a family history of IBD. Um, and I definitely think that given that there are medications that can, for example, either treat both cutaneous Crohn's and HS or um, potentially worsen Crohn's, it's important that we uh, make that distinction. Thank you, Jenny. That's really helpful. And in many some cases, HS can coexist with these other mimickers as well. So that's important to keep in mind. And especially when a patient who we think have HS and is on the typical therapy is not getting better or getting worse, we certainly want to think about the other differentials too. Very well. So why do we want to diagnose HS early? This is important for us to know that the diagnostic delay ranges widely, but can be between 2.3 to 10 years and can be as high as 19 years. The delay occurs in every step from seeking care by the family and the patient to receiving the proper diagnosis to finding the right HS specialist and receiving effective treatment. Typically, patients have at least three or more misdiagnoses, and these include abscesses, ingrown hair, folliculitis, and they see three or more clinicians before receiving the accurate diagnosis of hydroadenitis suppurativa. So we know that longer delay in diagnosis translates to more severe disease at the time of presentation and greater discomfort, and they're harder to treat as well. So 90% of the HS patients with the most delayed of 15 years or more have needed surgery for their disease. An early diagnosis, of course, allows early intervention. Our goal is to prevent HS from progressing into later stages, to prevent the sequelae of scarring and disability and burden, and to prevent them from having discomfort that come with later stage disease, and also to prevent scarring and disability. Vivian, what tips can you share about how to diagnose HS in earlier stages? That is the million dollar question. We try to catch these people early. I think for a clinician, the important thing is to think about it and ask the question um, when the patient in front of you. The brain doesn't see what we don't know. Uh, I typically ask in the past six months, have you had recurrent boils or abscesses in one or two of these areas? And the you know typical areas are underarms, below the breast or in the groin area. And if you get an answer that's yes, then there's a very high likelihood that we may be looking at HS. 
So let's start with the burden of HS. There are multiple studies done, like survey studies and cross-sectional studies. And the finding typically is congruent with most of the patients having large or very large quality of life impairment. And pain is the most common cause for decreased quality of life. The worse of the pain control, the less the patient likely is able to continue school and they're likely to not be able to find a job and have higher unemployment. There's this embarrassment and, embarrassment and social stigma that comes with HS and largely because of the discharge and staining and the unpredictable nature of flares. Disfigurement and scarring definitely causes disability and mobility issues and negatively impact on relationships on all levels, not just friendship, but also intimate relationships. And that leads to anxiety and depression. And the quality of life impairment typically correlates of how severe the HS disease is, as well as the number of lesions and the locations where they have HS, such as the inguinal and gluteal fold tend to have higher burden than other areas. So when we set goals for treatment, we really need to think about asking patients and their caregivers about their particular concern and how HS has impacted their quality of life. Sometimes the goals of us clinicians may differ quite uh, a lot from those of the patients, although there can be some overlap. You know, I think this is such an important topic because a lot of times, you know, on the clinician side, we're really looking for number of lesions to go down for larger lesions to shrink and really focusing on objectively seeing the skin lesions themselves improve. But on the patient side, you know, symptoms are so important, getting good control of pain, of itch, drainage, and understanding which symptoms are really bothersome to the patient that's sitting in front of us. And also tracking how they're doing is key to knowing whether or not the treatments that we're giving are actually helping the patients feel better. Another patient-centered measure that I will use in order to determine whether or not a treatment is working is to discuss the concept of flares. So HS patients will tell us that, you know, one of the things about HS that's so difficult is that flares happen. They can happen frequently, cause a lot of pain and distress, and they don't know when a flare is coming. So if a treatment is able to decrease the number of flares, severity, and duration of flares for a patient to where it really starts to minimally impact their quality of life, I think that is definitely impactful. And so quality of life impact scales are also key to include. You can ask one question asking globally how severely HS is impacting their overall quality of life and track, track their answer to that. Um, and then also getting patients back to doing what they love. I have a patient who loves horseback riding, and when she was able to get back on her horse and, um, you know, take her horse on a walk, I think that was a huge milestone um, for both of us. And so understanding what it is that motivates patients and what they want to get back to or want to try is, I think, really meaningful and helps us as clinicians ensure that we're on the right path with treatment. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that, Jenny. Now, let's hear a patient with HS discuss her experience with diagnosis, the day-to-day living with the condition. My name is Brinley Brooks, and I am the founder of hsconnect.org. I have lived with HS for 33 years. They started when I was around 10. Um, I started out with uh, boil-like abscesses on my groin um, and my buttocks. And given that we knew hardly anything about HS at that point, my mom had taken me to our family doctor, 
um, and he ended up lancing them while I was uh, without any kind of medication or any kind of numbing. Um, and at 10 years old, that's pretty, uh, it was pretty archaic and, um, it definitely was a difficult thing to handle at that age and not having any kind of answer for what I had. Um, you know, just being told I needed to lose weight. I needed to exercise more. All of these things that were so commonly told that are absolute mistruths with HS, um, started at that really young age. And as somebody who has HS, you're constantly hearing that kind of feedback and it's really detrimental to you as a person because this is not something that we ask for. It's not something that we're doing to create this situation, but from an outside perspective and just human nature in general, people need a cause, one sole cause or reason why something's happening. And this ends up where the blame game can kind of come into play with people with HS. But yes, it it was something that it, it weighs on an entire family. It doesn't just weigh on the person who has the disease. I was finally diagnosed when I was 16. So the average time to diagnosis for HS is between seven and 10 years. So I kind of fell right within that time frame. Um, when I was diagnosed, it was by a dermatologist. Um, I had seen many, at that point, pediatricians. Um, they kind of just kept telling me that it was recurrent boils. Uh, which is typically what will happen as well, um, you know, with with HS and the way that people, the way that it presents, um, that that's one of the things that we're commonly misdiagnosed with. Um, This is a very, very difficult um, and emotional disease. There is nothing else that I know of that will take your most intimate parts and completely destroy them. This disease fools you into thinking that you're unworthy of being loved, um, that you are not worthy of the title of being called beautiful, that you're constantly carrying this secret with you um, because most of the times where we get HS, we can hide it and we do. Um, There's such a stigma about HS and about, unfortunately, what happens with HS in the... um, you know, draining abscesses and having open wounds and the smell that comes along with that is devastating. Um, And if you're trying to, you know, be 20 years old and just trying to live your life and figure out where you belong, you have this disease that constantly is reminding you that you don't belong, that you don't fit in, that you're an outcast, that um, you have problems that you're hiding from other people. And that's a really, really heavy weight to carry. And I think that's what I'm trying to instill in my children is to change that. We deal with all of these situations that we're put in on a daily basis of learning how to figure, you know, how do you bandage an armpit? How do you bandage a groin? How do you deal with being out in public when you have an abscess that just drains and ruptures on you right then and there? Um, You have to learn how to be a specific way when you have HS. And what happens is over time, you forget that that's even happening. Yeah, it's... We're the people who carry extra clothes in the car. We're the people you will never see wearing white. We're the people who dread being invited to participate in someone's wedding and having to wear a strapless or a sleeveless dress. I would encourage people to provide support and to really not look past the psychosocial burden that happens with HS. Ask people about how they're doing. Sit down and really listen for a minute. And I think most of all, just educate yourself, educate people around you. Um, 
We need a lot more ER and urgent care doctors to be educated to stop lancing and doing incision and drainage on these. They're just creating, you know, further issues for some short-term relief. It's a long-term consequence for us. Um, So although we may come into you and be begging you to help us, it's really not the best thing to do for the disease long-term. We created HS Connect uh, to be a resource not only for patients, but also to be a resource for clinicians. Um, we have listed deroofing procedures on our site um, for, you know, for clinicians who want to learn how to do this. Uh, we want to teach people how to advocate for themselves and how to be partners with their physicians so that they can empower themselves and take control over their HS as well. Thank you, Brentley Brooks, for sharing your story. As you can see, this condition has a significant impact on quality of life. Let's move on to how current and emerging therapy can help improve symptoms and quality of life. Great. So now we're going to discuss current HS therapies as well as their limitations. Viv, can you please uh, describe? Yes. Yeah, so this is the money slide. We look at different types of treatments. Most patients will be recommended with non-medical management. These include lifestyle changes, clothing choices, antiseptic washes, and addressing any underlying issues that may trigger flares. Most patients will have a antibiotic regimen that includes topical antibiotics in early stages and systemic antibiotics, and sometimes even combined systemic antibiotics for different stages. Usually stage two or three, we would do combined systemic antibiotics. This is not, however, a long-term treatment option, though. And there are a number of systemic immunomodulating options. Now, adalimumab is the only FDA-approved option for HS, and it requires frequent dosing and requires higher doses may be needed for people who are heavier weight. And for some people, the efficacy may reduce over time, and there are 6.5% of the patients who can develop anti-drug antibodies, but nevertheless, a really good treatment option for HS patients. Along the lines of biologics, there are other immunomodulators, such as infliximab, an IV version of TNF inhibitor, usakimumab, an IL-12 and 23 inhibitor, anakinra, an IL-1 inhibitor, and there are a number of other biologics that are in the horizon that are available in the market but have not been FDA-approved and they carry various adverse events. Now, there are procedural treatments, such as deroofing and excision. It's operator-dependent and lesion-dependent, but most cases will involve some healing time and post-operative care. There may be post-operative comfort level issues and wound care, and the recurrence rate is definitely multifactorial. Now, there are other Treatments that can be added too, such as systemic retinoids, other immunosuppressants, such as methotrexate and JAK inhibitors. Laser hair reduction has been used for people with varying stages of HS. Intralesional steroids is very good for individual lesions that are flared. And these also carried treatment, discomfort, and have varying response rates as well. Let's talk about adalimumab, which is, again, the only currently FDA-approved therapy for HS. There were two trials, Pioneer 1 and 2. Each of these trials had over 300 patients, and there were two arms in the trials, one that looked at patients on adalimumab and one that looked at patients on placebo. So what we can see here in Pioneer 1 is that there was a statistically significantly greater proportion of patients who were on adalimumab who reached high score compared to those who were on placebo, 41.8 compared to 26%. And then in Pioneer 2, 
it was 58.9%, so almost 60%, compared to 27.6%, respectively. And so um, these were the two trials that helped get adalimumab its FDA approval. There were no differences between the groups adalimumab versus placebo in overall adverse events, serious adverse events, or adverse events leading to discontinuation. And so there were no new safety signals for adalimumab that came from these trials, which was reassuring. Then there was a open-label extension study that carried patients who wanted to continue the study through week 168. So now we're talking about data that's um, over three years out. And what was found was that over 52% of patients achieved high score during long-term adalimumab treatment. So treatment was maintained. Um, Continuous weekly dosing of adalimumab was effective and safe, demonstrating um, at least a greater than 32% reduction in abscesses inflammatory nodules, greater than 25% reduction in draining fistulas. In terms of adverse events in this open-label extension phase, there was no difference between groups studied. So let's take a closer look in how we can combine medical treatments and surgery. In terms of medical therapy, there are several combinations that can be tried. For example, with people with milder diseases, one can attempt the hormonal modulator with an oral retinoid. And those with more mild to moderate disease, a combined antibiotic regimen can be attempted. And those who are candidates for a biologic medication, a biologic like adalimumab can be combined either with oral retinoids or other antibiotics alone or in combination. And those who are also on adalimumab immunosuppressants or JAK inhibitors can be added on top of adalimumab for more efficacious response. What about surgery and medical therapy combined? There's a SHARP study that's a randomized controlled trial involving over 200 patients where adalimumab and wide local excisions were combined across all body regions. And what they found is that there was no increased risk in post-operative wound infection, complication, or hemorrhage in those who were on adalimumab versus placebo and have undergone these surgeries. That tells us that it's good to consider staying on adalimumab as the patients who are undergoing surgery for their HS. So secuclimumab is a human monoclonal antibody against interleukin-17A, and it's a subcutaneous injection. Currently, it's FDA-approved for plaque psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, axiospondyloarthritis, and emphysis-related arthritis. And you can see here, IL-17A kind of plays a central role in inflammation, and we now know IL-17 is elevated in both the serum and lesional skin in patients with HS. So... Dr. Shaw mentioned that secucumumab phase 3 trial met primary endpoint. What does that mean? So these are two randomized placebo-controlled trials called Sunshine and Sunrise. Very clever name. And they use their primary endpoint, high scar. So you can see there here in both studies, greater proportion of response rate was seen in secucumumab uh, patients compared to placebo. And they were seen across all time points from week 2 to week 16. And you can observe a pretty rapid onset of action as early as week 2. And there are no safety signals that are new versus safety signal that's established in the profile of secucumab and other disease states I mentioned. Um, this is known from clinical and post-marketing experiences across the approved indications. So potentially, there is another treatment option on the horizon for us. So now talking a little bit about bimikizumab, this is an interleukin-17A and F inhibitor 
Um, this is a medication that is approved in Europe for plaque psoriasis and has also uh, been studied in HS. A phase two trial of bimakizumab had 84 participants. And this study, beyond having uh, bimakizumab and placebo, also had an active comparator arm of adalimumab. The primary endpoint was to look at, again, this week 12 high score. Um, and again, high score is the 50% reduction or more from baseline of this inflammatory, you know, lesion count. And what we can see here is that looking through high score responses, so bimikazumab and adalimumab both showing that they're able to achieve higher proportion of patients reaching high score compared to placebo, um, both at high score 50 and then at high score 75 and 90, perhaps an improved depth of response with bimikazumab with more patients appearing to achieve high score 75 and 90 compared to those on the active comparator arm, adalimumab. And so um, a phase three trial is currently ongoing with bimikizumab, and it'll be exciting to see the data that comes. Now let's talk about another medication that's under investigation, bermecumab. This one is an interleukin-1-alpha inhibitor. And this phase two trial was an open-label trial looking at 42 patients. They were put into two groups of patients, those who have never been on a TNF-alpha antagonist, so TNF-naive, versus those who have failed in anti-TNF. There was no placebo group. So what this study found was that there was uh, a significant reduction in abscesses and inflammatory nodules, as well as a significant reduction in pain scores. And there is now currently another phase two trial underway that's comparing bromecumab with that active comparator arm of adalimumab versus placebo. So there are several challenges that we face when we treat patients with HS. And um, I'd like to move the discussion now to talking about how to best incorporate newer agents into management and also some management strategies that can be put into place. So Vivian, would you be able to comment on HS and comorbidities and how trying to manage one or the other should factor into our decision-making when we choose treatment regimen? That's a great question, Jenny. I think many patients with HS, especially those with moderate disease, will have one or more comorbidities associated with them. I like to tell my patients that we're not just treating your skin disease, we're treating you as a person, as a whole, to get you globally better. And we can't get you feeling better without treating these other comorbidities, such as patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome, with depression, anxiety, with anemia, or um, joint pain. So we definitely need to screen and work up for comorbidities and design a treatment that has medication stacking to address all of these issues. As newer agents are coming down the pipeline, do you think there will be a role for combining those with other treatment modalities that we already have? Absolutely. I think we're still at the stage um, where we don't have a silver bullet yet for HS like we see in the world of psoriasis and more recently in atopic dermatitis. So we will still be looking at combination treatments. I will be very interested as these new agents become available to how, see how they can be added to existing systemic th treatments like combined antibiotics, small molecule inhibitors, and really when is a good time to do surgery for these patients. And finally, as newer therapies are coming out, how do you foresee clinicians, you know, dealing with potentially adverse events that might be coming up that we haven't seen before? 
Yeah, I mean, adverse events will appear, I suspect, as a drug has been on the market for longer. It's important that we stay up to date for educational activities like this as new adverse events be reported um, and looking at longer open label extensions as they get reported. And my philosophy is that you don't know how the patient will respond in terms of efficacy or potential side effects until you give it a try. So I urge that all of us keep an open mind and try these new therapies for our patients. So let's summarize. HS, as you can see now, is characterized by painful recurrent lesions and the most commonly affecting intertriginous areas, but it can occur anywhere we have skin. Misdiagnosis is quite common, and a skin biopsy is not usually needed to reach a diagnosis. HS can severely impact the quality of life of the patients, and there are a number of potential treatment options, including biologics and small molecule inhibitors that may offer new hope for these patients. This is a great discussion on the exciting developments of HS in terms of diagnosis and treatment, and how these advances may positively impact the quality of life of our patients. Before we conclude the program, be sure to review and download the resources that we mentioned, and please feel free to share them since they may help other clinicians who care for patients with HS. That ends our discussion for today. Thank you again, Jenny, for your insights. We hope that you have found the activity informative and useful in your practice. Thank you again for participating. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash RJF 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.